Welcome to Dear Human Resources. In each episode, you'll hear about current HR topics and trends from experts, both practitioners and researchers, with the goal of giving you an insider's look at human resources. Today, Joyce He, who's a PhD candidate at the Rutman School of Management at the University of Toronto, is going to talk about gender and self-preservation in job applications. Welcome, Joyce. Thank you so much for having me. Joyce He is a PhD candidate in organizational behavior and human resource management at the Rutman School of Management at the University of Toronto. Starting this summer, she will be an assistant professor of management and organization at UCLA Anderson. Her research focuses on understanding the mechanisms for the continued persistence of gender inequality in labor markets and what organizations can do to disrupt them. And specifically, she examines how job seekers attempt to overcome anticipated gender biases in hiring decisions and how organizations can harness behavioral insights to de-bias selection procedures. Joyce's research has been published in Nature Human Behavior, the Academy of Management Journal, and the Journal of Vocational Behavior. Her work has also been featured in Scientific American and the Harvard Business Review. Joyce, you and a co-author recently published a research article investigating the motivations, the techniques, and the outcomes of managing gender in job applications for different kinds of jobs. What prompted you to study the relationship between gender and job applications? Well, the reason why we started thinking about the relationship between gender and self-presentation of gender, specifically in job applications, uh, the inspiration came from um, a previous paper by my co-author, Sonia Kang, where she looked at how um, racial minorities manage impressions of race when they apply to jobs. And so what she found in that previous paper was that uh, racial minorities, including Asian Americans, as well as African Americans, actually manage impressions of their race and their resumes. And they do so by what they call whitening their resumes. So using an anglicized first name like Joyce, or by removing cues to race in their extracurricular involvement. And so what they found was that, you know, Asian Americans and um, African Americans do this in their resumes and that doing so actually resulted in a um, kind of increased callback. So employers were more likely to interview or give a job to those who had whitened their resume, so to say. Now, I was inspired by this idea and, you know, I something that we are always managing impressions of is also gender. Right. And so in addition to race, gender is also a very, very salient uh, social category. There's also a lot of research in social psychology that suggests that there are different ways that people enact or uh, kind of perform gender, so to speak. And so we know in social psychology that people can use there's kind of gendered language in how so different gender differences in how women and men speak you know, even outfits and clothing and appearance, um, you know, that's also gendered and women and men may dress very differently. And so all of this kind of inspired us to think about how might job applicants then manage impressions of their gender in job applications? Um, and how might this be different from race, right? Because gender is a bit harder to kind of 
convey or hide in your job applications, given that your name already typically conveys your gender. And so we actually started the project before um, you know, we launched the actual uh, primary research. We actually did a pilot study where we asked job applicants online just a, ver- a various open-ended questions where we asked them, you know, what are strategies you use to manage impressions of gender and do you do this? Right. And so there, what we actually found was that um, people reported a variety of different techniques. And so people do manage impressions of their gender in their job applications, whether it be by using initials rather than names, by changing language that they use in their job applications, which is what we focus in the paper, or even by not mentioning extracurriculars or sorority involvements, et cetera, et cetera. And so this was all kind of what precedented the paper that we currently have. So can you give our listeners more details about your study and and how you conducted it? Sure. So in our paper, um, in our study, we have three separate kind of studies. And so in the first study, what we did was we took existing job applications, so um, cover letters and resumes, from kind of participants online and just ask them to kind of share with us their existing, these applications that they had used for a real job application. And then we asked them a variety of questions about the jobs that they had applied to and you know, whether they had gotten a callback or not. And so for this first study where we were looking at, you know, with these existing materials, can we find relationships between the, the applicant's gender, the kind of language they use in their job applications, and how does that then predict their, their job outcomes? So whether they were hired for the job or not. In the second study we did, we looked at this one specific field. And so in study two, we looked at MBA admissions. And so we had chosen MBA admissions because it's a male dominated field. And for the admissions data that we had gotten for the specific MBA application, all their applicants actually had to write a few words or descriptive words to describe themselves in the application process. And so we're actually able to look there at how uh, women and men use different kinds of words to describe themselves. And then how does this then predict their likelihood of being admitted or advancing in the MBA admissions process? And then finally, in study three, we ran a series of uh, two experiments where here we were really trying to isolate the mechanism of why women or men kind of manage impressions of their gender. And so for study three, instead of kind of looking at existing applications, we actually showed all our participants a job posting that was either female typed, male typed, or gender neutral. And we had our participants create or modify their existing job applications for this new job posting. And so there we can actually look at how job seekers are actually changing or covering, so to speak, gender language in their uh, job applications, in their cover letters. What we did then was we actually took these real job applications that participants created for these fictional job postings. And then we actually showed these job applications to a separate group of evaluators who then they they again saw these job applications and rated them on how likely they were to hire these people and how much they liked or thought that they were competent. And so it kind of forms like a yoked experiment is what we call it, where you have both 
the real applications from participants on who are acting as job applicants, but also the evaluators' reactions to those very job applications. And so throughout studies one to three, we were looking at the use of gender language in cover letters uh, because we had thought about looking at resumes, but you know, as you might expect with cover letters, you do have a bit more artistic freedom, so to speak. Whereas with resumes, we just see less variation in the kind of language that people use. And what were your findings in all those three studies? For all those three studies, what we found consistently is that, you know, we had started the the research question by looking at both how women and men might manage impressions of their gender. But what we found is that it's actually only really women who manage impressions of their gender when they apply to male-dominated jobs. Women manage impressions of their gender when they apply to male-dominated jobs by downplaying cues that signal their femininity. And so in the paper, we operationalize this as the use of feminine language and cover letters. And so in studies one to three, we find that women use less feminine language when they apply to male-dominated jobs. And so feminine language in this case is language or words like collaborative, warm, interdependent, friendly, sympathetic, So words that are stereotypically associated with women. And we also find that women do this when they apply to male-dominated jobs because they expect that evaluators or employers will actually see them negatively as a woman applying for male-dominated jobs. And so they essentially anticipate that they're going to kind of come across bias against their gender when they apply to male-dominated jobs. And so they downplay femininity because they're kind of hiding or covering that devalued gender identity. And so that's what that's the main finding that we have on the applicant side. On the other side, we then looked at the outcomes of these managing these strategies and we actually find that it backfires in the sense that women who use less feminine language for any kind of job, so whether it's feminine, uh, female typed or male typed, are actually less likely to get hired for those very jobs that they use that strategy to gain an advantage for, which is very ironic. Joyce, can you give us an example of what you mean by a male-dominated job? We looked at a variety of different male-dominated jobs. And so in study one in our paper, we looked at all kinds of jobs. So it could be jobs in engineering, could be jobs in computer science, jobs in manufacturing, for instance. In study two, we really narrowed in on one specific male-dominated domain, which was MBAs, right? And so for MBAs, um, if you look at just the distribution of women and men in MBA programs in the US and Canada, we can see that although there are efforts to increase the number of women who are getting MBAs, it's still predominantly men who are enrolled um, in MBA programs. And then finally, in study three, in our experiment, we create a male-dominated job posting for a tech assistant. And so that was the specific domain that we had looked at in our experiment. In your article, you write that one way women overcome gender discrimination when applying for male-dominated jobs is by managing what you call gender impressions. For example, by attempting to appear less feminine in cover letters. But these attempts as you said, can backfire. Can you expand on that? You know, one thing that we're really interested in looking at was, as you mentioned, this, you know, what are the outcomes of these strategies? 
And so, you know, at first going in, we had thought that women who use less feminine language might be, this might be a successful strategy. Because if we think about the previous work on impression management, on impression management of race or age, for instance, most of that literature actually shows that these efforts or these strategies are very successful. And so, for instance, applicants who manage age, impressions of their age by, you know, putting on makeup or dressing more youthfully typically are seen in a more favorable light when they do engage in those strategies. And similarly for race as well, in this um, Ms. Whitening paper, what they find there is also that racial minorities who kind of signal that they're more assimilated with the you know, majority culture or white in their resumes are more likely to get a callback from um, employers. And so we actually initially thought that maybe managing gender by using less feminine language could work essentially, or help women to get a, a get a foot up in male-dominated jobs. Now, unfortunately, what we actually end up ended up finding is that first of all, it doesn't seem to matter the kind of jobs that women are applying to. It seems that across all types of jobs, uh, women who use less feminine language are less likely to get hired, so they're less likely to get a callback and they're seen as less hireable, which is kind of interesting. So we do find this backfiring kind of effect. You say that when women use less feminine language in their job application, ironically, they're less likely to be hired. Why do you think that is the case? The reason why we think this is the case, you know, this is a really interesting question because as I um, kind of said earlier, it is a very ironic effect and one that is a little bit counter to our expectations. But if we actually look into the literature on stereotypes in psychology, this makes a lot more sense. In social psychology, there's a, a, a very large and robust literature on prescriptive stereotypes. And so these are stereotypes that act kind of like rules about how women and men should behave. And so on the one hand, we have descriptive stereotypes, which are things, statements like, you know, women tend to be friendly, women tend to be humble. But there's also prescriptive stereotypes, which are essentially statements like women should be friendly, women should be humble. These prescriptive stereotypes are essentially expectations or rules that society has ingrained in us that we hold for women and for men and their behaviors. Essentially, when women are applying to male-dominated jobs and are engaging in this covering strategy by using less feminine language in their job applications, although their goal there is to be seen as perhaps less feminine and more of a fit with the male-type job, they're actually running into this other form of bias where they're then violating expectations around how women are expected to self-present. So they're violating these prescriptive stereotypes. There is actually a whole literature that looks at the double bind of women in leadership, where it's a very similar problem where, you know, if women don't do anything at all, they're seen as perhaps not fitting your expectations or not fitting your idea of what a leader looks like. But if women do then act more assertively, more ambitiously to be seen more like a leader, then they run into, you know, because they're behaving kind of counter stereotypically, they're seen as less likable. And so people then see them as kind of um, bad women, so to speak. And so it's kind of this catch 22 zone where 
Either way, if you don't do anything or if you try to see, be seen more like a leader, you kind of encounter these barriers. And so, what we're finding here with job applications and feminine language is actually very similar. And we actually tested this mechanism. And so, what we did was we looked at how evaluators were seeing these women who use less feminine or more feminine language in their job applications. And we do find that when women use less feminine language in their job applications, they're seen as less likable. So they're actually seen just as they're actually seen as more competent or just as competent as men, but they're seen as less likable because they're no longer conforming to expectations around how we expect women to behave. And so then that this less like this lower likability then leads to women being seen as less hireable. This kind of backlash effect really fits within what we know about women in leadership, and、um, these kind of backfiring effects for women in, who try to act more assertively as leaders as well. And so, you know, something that is really interesting is why do we observe this for gender? So for women managing impressions of their gender, but not for race, right? So. That is a really interesting point, and I think one of the most things, one of the things that we need to think about is the construct of gender. So we know that gender is one of the primary social categories in social perception. Our automatic categorizations are based on gender, right? It's one of the first things that we see, and it's really hard to kind of not think about gender at all. Part of the reason is that when evaluators are looking at these、uh, resumes and job applications. They're looking at them quite quickly, rather than seeing、uh, when they're looking at these job applications. You know, they're the first thing that pops out is probably gender. So this is a woman, and so then these perceptions of gender and their associated stereotypes then drive the focus of their perceptions, and that's why we see this kind of backlash for women who do engage in this covering、uh, strategy. So, what are the implications of your findings for both female job candidates, but also for HR practitioners? For female job candidates, it's a little tricky.、Um, the implications are a little tricky because, as I mentioned, you know, there as with this double bind in leadership,、um, it's kind of tricky either way. If you don't, to, if you you know don't manage impressions, you might be seen as not fitting that male typed role. But if you do, then you kind of violate expectations around how women are expected to behave. Now, I think one thing that、um, to keep in mind is also that there is a, a benefit to being authentic, and you know there is kind of room for experimentation. And so the takeaway here, I think, for job candidates is that you should kind of try and experiment. You know what works for you, what makes you comfortable, and you know sometimes there is a benefit to just being authentic. And there's research actually showing this that when people are authentic in their self presentation, they're actually more likely to find a job that fits them. And that they're going to enjoy. Now, I think the majority of the implications are actually going to fall onto HR practitioners, and the reason is because I think our research really emphasizes that even when women、um, do try to navigate these biases or try to manage impressions of their gender to overcome different forms of, you know, discrimination or biases in the labor market, it actually backfires. Right, and so it's a very difficult space to navigate. It's difficult to know what exactly is the right answer. And I think the the main kind of takeaway here is that we should be trying to fix the root of the problem rather than putting the onus on women or racial minorities or any kind of underrepresented group to navigate this space. And the root of the problem is ultimately the bias that exists. 
right, in selection, in recruitment. And the onus, I think, is really on organizations and practitioners to redesign or try to take away the bias from their selection processes. And there's a lot of ways that they can do this. And, you know, I think there's a lot of research in integrating behavioral insights and gender um, and diversity and inclusion. So a lot of research looking at behavioral, integrating behavioral insights and diversity inclusion that are looking at these questions of how can we de-bias selection processes to make them less biased for everyone. And so there it's more about what can practitioners and organizations do. And so I think that is the main takeaway for, for us. So are there any other ways we can stop the perpetuation of gender segregation in jobs? Yes, there's actually a lot of really interesting emerging research, as I mentioned, looking at specifically this question of how can we stop the perpetuation of gender segregation and also gender bias in selection processes. Now, some examples of this research, um, a lot of this research is on, as I mentioned, behavioral economics, but There's research, for instance, showing that the language and job descriptions actually is one thing that perpetuates gender segregation. And so there's a paper that finds that male-typed jobs tend to contain more masculine language. So this is where it's like assertive, uh, dominant, competitive, et cetera, et cetera. So language typically associated with men. And that the gendered language in these job applications actually cause women to feel they don't belong and that they're they don't actually want to apply. So it's kind of very similar to what we find in our paper, but kind of more on, you know, what are, what's the language in job descriptions? And there is research coming out now showing that, you know, one way to then de-bias these job descriptions is actually to remove the gendered language. So remove masculine language and replace it with gender neutral language or with feminine language. Right, so that's one concrete strategy for organizations to use to attract more women. Another way to attract more women or get women to apply more is also by looking at how you're writing qualifications. And so this is research by Katie Kaufman at Harvard Business School, where she finds that in a series of experiments that you know, when you have more subjective or vague qualifications, for instance, you know, like have an excellent record in blank. Right. When it's kind of subjective, women are less likely to apply because they're less likely to see themselves as matching that bar. However, one way to overcome this is actually to make qualifications very concrete and objective. Right. So instead of saying having an excellent record, maybe it's have three years of experience in this specific tool, for instance. Um, and so what they find is that in, um, in, in their research is that when these qualifications are concrete, women are just as likely to, as men to uh, apply to the, these jobs because then they, there's less room for interpretation about do I fit that bar or not. Now on the selection side, so beyond just recruitment, there's also a lot of research looking at, you know, how can we make better decisions that, about whom to hire? And so one way is with anonymized evaluate, evaluation. And so anonymized evaluations are a very popular and I think very commonly talked about um, nudge that we can use to de-bias decisions. Um, and so this is inspired by the work in orchestras where they find that having blind auditions where you don't see who's performing actually reduce the gender gap in orchestras. And so companies might do this by taking away the names or any kind of identifying information 
from resumes when they're looking at them at the first pass. And then one other kind of uh, nudge that people can, that organizations can use to, again, de-bias their selection process is joint versus separate evaluation. You know, there's one way to look at applications, which is looking at, you know, one by one. So you might see an applicant, applicant number one, and then you say yes or no, do we shortlist this person or not? And then you look at the next person. That's separate evaluation. And research finds that there tends to be more bias when you have this kind of separate evaluation. Joint evaluation, on the other hand, is when you have people side by side, when you compare people side by side. So instead of looking at applicant one and then applicant two, you look at applicant one and two together. And so there you're better able to compare them. And we're less likely to have these global um, biases around, well, how much we like these people or not. And so it's um, research also finds that when you have joint evaluation compared to separate evaluation, there's less gender bias in your decisions. And so that's another concrete way to de-bias the selection process. And these are just a few examples, but there is definitely a growing body of work looking at this specific question of, you know, how can we concretely stop gender bias in selection and recruitment? In closing, Joyce, can you give our listeners one breakthrough finding that may be a game changer for uh, female job applicants and for HR leaders? Yeah, so I think the breakthrough finding is really that, and our overall takeaway is that um, even when women try to overcome gender bias in the labor market, when they apply to male-dominated jobs, they actually run into other form of biases. And so, as I mentioned earlier, the takeaway here really is that, you know, putting the onus and responsibility on women to lean in, so to speak, or to navigate biases in the labor market is frankly unfair and as we show, ineffective. I think the main takeaway here is really that companies should be thinking about their role in perpetuating these biases, but also their role in alleviating gender segregation and and gender biases. It's a starting point for uh, and conversation for companies to start thinking about the ways that they can de-bias their own selection processes and play an active role in um, alleviating gender segregation. I like the fact that you want to concentrate on the root of the problem, not the actual job applicants. Exactly. Refreshing. Thank you, Joyce, for sharing your insights about the role of gender in job applications and what job candidates and HR professionals can do to alleviate gender biases. Thank you so much. Thank you for listening to this episode of Dear Human Resources. In each episode, you will hear about current HR topics and trends from experts, both practitioners and researchers, with the goal of giving you an insider's look at human resources.